The title for today's talk is Joining Hands. It's a, it's a talk calling for harmony and cooperation in the world. Curiously, I don't find that this is an easy call to make. Not because any voices will rise against it. Quite the contrary. Because harmony and cooperation have become a platitude with which, are, with which we all agree in theory. But do we really cultivate them? Our relentless practice of disharmony remains unacknowledged under the varnish of socially prescribed, well-mannered behaviors. So I feel that before my call for harmony, for joining hands, can have a real impact, can, can be for real, it's necessary to acknowledge the seething disharmony that may lie underneath our words and action. So let, let's look at that uh, and how we unjoin our hands. We keep our hands unjoined in a multitude of ways. The most blatant, the most flagrant one, of course, is war, right? And here we are. This country hasn't been without a war for a long, long time. Uh, the upshot of war is carnage, of course, and not just in the battlefields among civilians as well, and that's even more serious. And then war's impact is not limited to that, it's not limited to the killing fields. It deeply impacts our minds as well. Flagrant example is the minds of the uh, soldiers that come back home with, for instance, post-traumatic stress syndrome, with, for instance, a compulsion to commit suicide, and with a host of other syndromes that nobody has found names for. But, but it's not only that. It spills over on the minds of all of us as well. It spills over in our living rooms through the video games that kids and grown-ups as well sometimes play, or war movies we watch. I, I watch war movies too. I mean, not that I seek them, they come up sometimes. And nothing else to do. Sit in, instead of sitting in meditation, I sit sometimes at the end of the day in front of the TV. It, it's not a good taste, you know. 
I can't stand them really very long. It spills over in our hearts through hate, through hate to other individuals, through whoever it is, through hate to former presidents, whatever. And then our ego takes over this warring platform to boost itself up, to encourage us to, to stay in the split between us and them. Even without wars, anger it would seem to be for many of us and it used to be for me I must say the default setting of our mind if in doubt turn to anger you know we'd receive a lot of mailings I'm sure you do too asking for money so a few weeks ago I looked into a request by one Mr. Asner, I think it is. I've, I've forgotten what it was for, but I thought it was a worthy cause, so I'd uh, put in the pile of things that I don't throw into the wastebasket immediately anyway. But then I thought I'd read the letter accompanying it. In the first three paragraphs, very short paragraphs, barely 150 words. I counted the word anger seven times. One out of every 20 words was anger. Sorry, Mr. Asner, that did it. You goofed with me. But, but it seems to work. Now, beyond and underlying, underlining all these much too frequent episodes of war and anger. What keeps us from joining hands really and in practice is the pervasiveness of our economic system, the pervasiveness of the market system. It's a system that controls our lives because it manages to run our lives. We need uh, some income somehow. And uh, the, it holds as a basic rule, and necessarily, but it does so, look out for number one, period. The ego could not have asked for a better stage to do its thing. How did our system of exchanging things, services, money get this way? I understand, I'm not a historian, but I understand it all started about two and a half centuries ago with the Industrial Revolution. And anyway, this historical bit is beyond the scope of this talk, and certainly this beyond the scope of my 
understanding, my knowledge. But anyway, I want to focus on, on one aspect, which is the rationale used to justify the dominance of the market, the dominance of competition in running our lives. This is a rationale that was championed by Adam Smith, an economist called Adam Smith, a Scottish economist, at the time of the Industrial Revolution. And, and I thought it was interesting to look up what he would say, and here's one thing that he said. He said, the rich, in spite of their natural selfishness and rapacity, though they mean only their own convenience, though the sole end which they propose from the labors of all the thousands whom they employ be the gratification of their own vain and insatiable desire, in spite of all of that, he says, they divide with the poor the produce, produce, the product, I suppose, of all their improvements. May have been like that two and a half centuries ago. Today we call that trickle-down economics, right? And the trickle is very small. It's there, it's very small. And Anyway, Adam Smith goes on to, to say, they are led by an invisible hand. This is very important. That's the idea of the invisible hand comes from, was first proposed in this little paragraph. They are led by an invisible hand to make nearly the same distribution of the necessities of life which would have been made had the earth been divided into equal proportions among all its inhabitants. And thus, without intending it, without knowing it, advance the interest of society and afford means to the multiplications of the species. Pretty optimistic, Mr. Smith. Today this sounds like a caricature, really. It would seem that whatever the, over, the invisible hand did or didn't do in Adam Smith's time, today it has gone berserk. Not just in the unequal distribution of, of a produce or product, but also because our economic system has become a basket case. In strange and surreptitious way, our money, in huge amounts, as we've just learned recently, ends up in the virtual casino of the financial sector. It all goes there. I wonder whether that's why the, the invisible hand is called invisible, right? <laughs> In the process, this hand refuses to consider the irreparable damage inflicted upon the planet and all beings inhabiting it. Our wealth 
ourselves included. When the economic system for self-centered behavior becomes unpalatable, problematic, the fallback position is that what, what can we do? Selfishness, anyway, is our nature. I saw that expressed quite well in a letter to the New York Times magazine a few months ago. Um, responding to the previous issue of the New York Times magazine labeled The Green Mind. I never read it, but you know, suggesting that we do green things. Okay, so here's the, the letter of one Steve Heilig from San Francisco to know who he is. While speculation about why most of us aren't very good at ecological thought and action is very interesting, the primary reason is likely more mundane. Humans are selfish creatures at base, and true greenness requires self-sacrifice. But as our previous vice president quipped, the American way of life is not negotiable. Too many of his fellow Americans still appear to agree with him. The primary green of our brains is cash, not conservation. You know, uh, I mean, surely there's a truth in that. I don't believe there is a truth in, in humans being selfish creatures at heart, as we keep hearing. But there's a truth that we believe that, largely, in our culture. Or at least we, we get bombarded by this um, culture of selfishness. This belief can be traced back to Darwin's theory of evolution, first proposed over a century ago when the Industrial Revolution was flourishing. Would Darwin, well, Darwin, first of all, Darwin proposed that evolution is a fact. Well, before him, nobody had thought that we evolved from somebody else, some other creature. He proposed that we did, and the fact all creatures evolved from each other, from initial one. And this is something that there's, among the scientific community, there is very little or no disagreement. This is something that I taught for decades as a biology professor. That, meaning that plants and animals evolve, one from each other, one species from the other, as a result of natural selection. But while this much is beyond dispute within the scientific community, what remains an open question, although many ignore that, is whether selection 
acted primarily by picking out the strongest, most aggressive individuals, or actually selection favored groups and community which practice cooperation, because there's a great strength derived from cooperation. This question becomes an issue because if the answer is that selection acts only individual, then this answer can be used to legitimize, perhaps illegitimately, but anyway, to legitimize the dominance of the market on the economy on the grounds that humans are selfish creatures at heart. You know, the Dalai Lama, besides being a spiritual and political teacher, is somebody who consorts with scientists as well. He has these yearly meetings with scientists. And, and, and he says it, it puts it very, very well, so I'm going to use his words. I feel that this in a, uh, that the, sorry, I feel that the inability or unwillingness fully to engage the question of altruism is perhaps the most important drawback of Darwinian evolutionary theory, at least in its popular version. In the natural world, which is purport purported to be the source of the theory of evolution, just as we observe competition between and within species for survival, we observe profound levels of cooperation. Just as we observe acts of aggression in animals and humans, we observe also acts of altruism and compassion. Why does modern biology accept, or I should say tend to accept, only competition to be the fundamental operating principle, and only aggression to be the fundamental trait of human beings? Why does it reject, or I would say tend to reject, cooperation as an operating principle, and why does it not see altruism and compassion as possible traits for the development of living beings as well. Indeed. Indeed, there are plenty of scientific narratives that could be used to counter the justification of selfishness. In fact, to if you wish to justify selflessness, only that these narratives receive much less of a hype in main, main, mainstream culture than the narratives of selfishness. Let me, let me just take a few moments to share a couple with you. One is known as the Gaia hypothesis, and I'll go over that briefly. That, um, a few decades ago, um, an English scientist called James Lovelock, Jim Lovelock, was hired by n the NASA space program to go to California, and his assignment was to compare 
the composition of the atmosphere in a variety of planets, including the Earth. He found that except for the Earth, the composition of the atmosphere was exactly what you would expect from the rules of chemistry, from the laws of chemical equilibrium. In other words, you put these components on a, on a container and they eventually reach equilibrium and they give you the composition of Mars or Venus or whoever. But not for the Earth. Clearly, the composition of the Earth and the proportion of the various components of the Earth atmosphere is the result of the activities of plants and animals populating it throughout its history. <coughs> Fine. This is not such a strange discovery. The strange discovery is that Lovelock concluded in ways that are beyond this talk, that this composition must have been kept very, very steady, varying within very, very narrow limits throughout a thousand million years. Why? Because basically because if it had varied too much, it would have been uninhabitable for the first bacteria, then plants and animals inhabiting it. The, what is extraordinary here is how did all this diverse organism manage to coordinate their activity so they kept the balance? This, to this day, is a mystery. What is very clear, of course, as soon as we came along with our greed and technology, not initially, but in the last uh, uh, century, perhaps, we managed to discombobulate the whole thing, you know? And there it is, global warming and all kinds of other problems with the composition of the atmosphere. Um, Lovelock had a neighbor in England who was a, a writer whose name escapes me now. Anyway, he ran into him on the street one day, as you do in small villages in England, and he started talking about his work. And this guy got very interested, and he said, have you thought about the goddess of the earth? Lovelock didn't know a thing about it. Who is she? Oh, yeah, Gaia, Greek goddess of the earth. Oh. He persuaded Lovelock to label his hypothesis as the Gaia hypothesis. Question is, is it really far-fetched to imagine that all of the Earth inhabitants could have worked in harmony for millions of years? I don't think so. I don't think it's uh, uh, that far-fetched. 
It's just that we don't pay that much attention to instances of harmony. But if you look at the scientific literature, as I used to do, there are plenty of examples. One just came to my attention recently by just reading a, um, a, a little thing in the New York Times. I don't read the scientific publications any longer. It's about the ants. Uh, this is Australian scientists studying, of course, Australian ants. And may happen in other places as well, surely. They decided to study how ants respond to being fed food with different proportion of protein and carbohydrate. And they found that the ants in charge, because there's this division of labor among ants, the ants in charge of providing the food, the so-called foraging ants, would always select the appropriate mixture, no matter what mixture they were offered. Not only that, the proportion of, of protein carbohydrate that the foraging ants provided to the colony dependent upon the, whether there were larvae in the colony or not. Because larvae need a higher proportion of protein. So if they're larvae, they fetch more protein, and vice versa. Boy. What a nutrition is this foraging ants? Eh? And they didn't go to school or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so it's possible to regulate in ways that we don't understand. We might get to understand, we might not, sure. In some do we conclude that the mind of living creatures, us included, is basically selfish or unselfish? I'd rather say that we don't know for sure. How about that? And I say that because I'm not interested in replacing one doctrine of selfishness by another doctrine of selflessness, of basic selfishness or unselfishness. Having said that, I'm well aware that many teachers, enlightened teachers, in the Buddhist and other traditions that have no compunction at asserting that our basic mind is pure and loving. And in fact, some of the Buddhist scriptures can be read that way. And I have no quarrel with that assertion, but, but, 
This is what I said. What I'll say. If we characterize the mind as selfish, we end up creating a selfish culture and therefore the selfish mind. Vice versa. If we characterize the nature of our mind as pure and wholesome, this in itself has a great persuasive power for our mind to be pure and wholesome. So it's a very beneficial thing to do. So I understand why <laughs> teachers I respect very much would say that. I understand why the Buddha would say that. After all, the Buddha kept saying, all I teach is for the purpose of ending suffering, not of transmitting absolute truth. I mean, absolute truth is something that we discover ourselves in other ways, but, but not through the teachings. In fact, this, the argument in defense of the postulation that the mind is basically pure, it's like a placebo effect, right? You know, placebos are things that you take that in themselves are not medicines, but because you believe they will have this good effect, they have this good effect. By golly, nothing wrong with that, particularly if it cures you from your problems. And so, let's cultivate that conviction in the purity of mind. And let's do it soon, because unless we do it soon, we're going to run into serious trouble. And guys like the one who sent that letter to the New York Times will keep pestering us and say, no, 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 green mind. Green mind means green of money, not green of plants. But far more important, you know, I've taken a lot of time on the rationale for pure mind, impure mind, selfish mind. But what, what really matters, what really matters is what we practice. Yes. <laughs> so that it's, it's important that we give our wholesome and loving mind an opportunity to practice, opportunities to join hands with each other. Instead of relying on an invisible hand that for centuries has been playing tricks on us under the table. Let us join hands with each other instead of punching each other with our fists or even using our hands to gun each other down. Let's start by join, joining hands, both, liter both literally and figuratively, with those 
we share our life with. And then extending them to family, friends, acquaintances, to our community of like-minded people, and beyond to all people and creatures in the world, in all worlds. The scriptures register this dialogue between the Buddha and Ananda, if I can find it, here it is. Ananda was the Buddha's uh, assistant, and the venerable Ananda said to the blessed one, that's the Buddha is called, that's from the scriptures, venerable sir, venerable sir, good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship is half of the holy life. And the Buddha answered, not so, Ananda. Not so, Ananda. Good friendship, good com companionship, good comradeship is the whole of the holy life. Quite unambiguous. And it's friendship not just with each other. It's extending this friendship to all living beings and to nature as well. Could a, friend, a friendship that embraces all nature become the law of the land? I was very touched when I discovered this has just happened in Ecuador. Tiny little country, you know. We think we have to teach them things. Here they teach us something very important. They adopted a constitution last September. And here's a short excerpt from it. Nature, or Pachamama, Pachamama is a goddess of the, the Gaia, the earth goddess. Whenever in Indian communities in Ecuador, among other places, you, you're going to drink a drink, and they do drink. You, you never start drinking unless you drop a few grounds on the, a few drops on the ground. The ground, which is, of course, dirt most of the time. Not on this <laughs> carpet, please. <laughs> and, and that goes for Pachamama. Uh, okay, now. Nature of Pachamama, where life is reproduced and exists, this is a quote from the Constitution, has the right to exist, persist, maintain, and regenerate its vital cycles, structures, functions, and its processes in evolution. Every person, people, people meaning groups of people, uh, community or nationality, will be able to demand the recognition of rights for nature before the public bodies. Wow. You could sue anybody who attempts against nature. You know, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. Of course, there are legal implications, I don't know. But 
And one more thing here. Our hands are connected at both ends. You know, I mean, I can connect my hand with this, but it's also connected with me. Through our hands, we both touch others and are touched by others. We reach out for others and others reach out for us. This is not true of the hands of a robot, for instance, which are just mechanically connected and they connect nothing to nothing. But our hands have two life ends and are able to do the loving at both ends, to touch and be touched, to give love and receive love. The thoughts and feelings we communicate through our hands and through our body language in general and our gestures and our speech reverberate inside each one of us and through the collective. The, to facilitate this reverberation, this vibrancy, we need to remain open-ended. We need to to drop our encasement in our invented identity, to, to stop being stuck in our clingingness or competitiveness, but rather open up, be available to all that comes our way. Please understand me, I'm not offering nice platitudes. This is a concrete program of behavior with our physical hands, if you wish, but this, uh, they stand uh, for our hearts, of course. What, I, what I'm talking about is concretely available to each one of us when we start practicing with probably have already started practicing, joining up in our hearts with the rest of the world, animals included. Our ability to connect is contagious. Others can pick it up and use it as an inspiration to connect yet with somebody else. Even our current president is providing inspiration for us to get together with our fellow citizens. That's quite new. And so let's endow this citizen-to-citizen -citizen connection with a depth of intimacy that we are all capable of. In closing, let me yield the floor, yield the floor to one of my fav favorite poets called Pablo Neruda, a Chilean poet who was outstanding for his political engagement, but there's another side to him as well.
very spiritual one. Here's a, two verses that I have stayed with me, and I'll read them first in Spanish and then translate them. He said, Hay que dejar establecida la nueva ternura en el mundo. We need to install a new tenderness in the world. So, let us. And let us see, sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.